This week, there are two episodes of Power Corrupts. They're a bit of a departure from our normal script, so please bear with us, but I hope you'll still find them interesting. Today's episode has me turning the microphone around on myself. Rather than interviewing some shady crooks or experts on money laundering, I'm being interviewed by Emma Nelson, a top-notch journalist based in London, about whether it's really true that power corrupts, as the podcast title suggests. That's because my new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, comes out next week on November 9th, 2021. I am sorry about the self-promotion, but I have found it to be the most interesting project I've ever worked on in my life, and I learned a ton while researching it. So I hope you'll find the discussion intriguing as well. Tomorrow, there will be another episode, which includes a lengthy excerpt from the audiobook version, read by yours truly. If you pre-order the book or the audiobook, you'll get access to an exclusive bonus episode of Power Corrupts. Just go to my website, brianpkloss.com, Kloss with two A's and one S, click on Corruptible in the top right corner, and fill out the form. If you do that, you'll get a link sent to you on November 9th with a full episode of Power Corrupts that won't be released publicly. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and thank you for listening. Brian, it is a delight to have you online to ask you about a book that clearly looks as if it took a lot of time to bring together and is absolutely jam-packed full of stories. How was this book born? Well, so I've been working around awful, powerful people for most of my career. That is sort of the through line. I, I study bad people who do bad things. And I made this podcast with the title Power Corrupts because I thought it sounded cool without sort of reflecting on whether it was true or not. And so I started to think more deeply about whether it was true that power corrupted. And that leads to a lot of other questions about who actually seeks power, who gets power, who ends up in power. How do you stay in power and what does it do to you when you wield it? And so I started thinking in a much broader sense, not just about politics, but about what we can learn from how the brain works, what we can learn from evolutionary biology, what we can learn from, and I'm not making this up, hyenas and bees and wasps and animals and how they have corruption in their world. And so it casts a really wide net and I basically set out to interview as many weird, interesting people from taking a ski lesson with a man who once ruled Iraq to sipping wine with the daughter of a cannibalistic dictator, along with the people who actually study some of the mechanisms that are are relevant to power, like psychopathy. Why do psychopaths get power? What does it do to your brain chemistry when you get power? Talking to neuroscientists. So it's been a thing that's been sort of floating around in my mind for the better part of 10 years. But in earnest, I started working on it in 2019, and it's consumed my life ever since. And it's also the reason for the listeners of the podcast why there was a delay between season two and season three, because I was listening to a lot of experts and trying to sort out my thoughts on this while writing the book. I think one thing that I must ask you from that last answer is your attraction to bad people or examining bad people. What is it about bad people that that you're drawn to? Well, I think there's an innate human fascination with people who behave in monstrous ways. And I think there's also something that I have experienced in meeting them over the last decade, which is this weird experience of liking awful people. And I don't mean this in a sort of like judgment way. I don't think they're good people and I don't like them in the sense of, oh, I'd recommend that I become friends with them. I mean that 
they're likable in the encounters I have with them. It provides this really weird emotional juxtaposition where you're sitting with somebody who has, for example, ordered live rounds to be used on peaceful protesters and caused a number of people to be shot dead. And yet they're joking and laughing and talking about their family. They're being really charming. And that experience in your head is a really weird one to go through. You're trying to reconcile what this person did with how this person presents themselves and how you interact with them. But I'm also always fascinated, and I think this hopefully comes through in Power Corrupts, with how you make the world a better place. And to do that, you have to actually figure out what makes these bad people tick, right? I mean, I think there's this sort of puritanism sometimes in people in media or politics that say, oh, we're not going to interview or we're not going to try to understand this person who's done a monstrous thing. I think it's a bizarre way of viewing the world. I mean, if you study cheetahs or hyenas and you don't ever encounter them, you'd think that that was a real mistake as a scientist. And yet when we study politics and we try to think about how to make the world a better place, these people are out there. They exist, right? So I would go to West Africa and meet with rebel commanders and try to figure out what makes them tick. Now, it takes time. It's not the easiest thing to get these people to agree to say yes to an interview, but it's worth it. And I think that's where a lot of the book research really comes into its own is when you sort of try to mix what the academic expertise has found with the personal stories and narratives that these awful people tell themselves and tell you about why they've done what they've done. Tell us a little bit about what it's like trying to secure an interview with a despot. And when you do finally meet them and they are they are telling you their tales of maintaining and exerting power in horrifying ways, what tone do they take? Do they take one of necessity or pride or sheepishness? In order of getting the interviews, the smartest advice I ever got, and this applies to pretty much everything in the world, was from my PhD supervisor about a decade ago. And he said, flattery works. Ego really drives people. So what he meant by that is when I was interviewing people who were sort of the small fish in a society, I'd go to these countries, I'd live there for a couple months, and I would say to them at the end of the interview, you know, I'd really like to talk to the general. Say I'm talking to a colonel in the army. I'd really like to talk to the general, and I hear that you're really, really connected in the military. Would you be able to help me out? Well, if they don't, there's cognitive dissonance in their head that they're not actually as connected as I think they are. And I used that tactic to get from literally from journalists to presidents. And I just took a lot of, a lot of elbow grease and, and sometimes months. But you do end up in these rooms if you're perseverant and if you're lucky. A lot of it has to do with luck. But one of my favorite examples I talk about early on in the book is with a guy that I know pretty well now, uh, Mark Ravalomanana from Madagascar. And he was the former president. He grew up selling yogurt off the back of his bicycle, turned it into a dairy empire over the span of a couple decades, and became president in the early 2000s. And as he went through his two terms, he got increasingly corrupt. He <laughs> leased a presidential plane that he somewhat, in grandiose terms, he called it Air Force Two, uh, as though it was the second plane after Air Force One. But he leased it to himself rather than to the Malagasy state. And I had breakfast with him. And it was out of a film. I mean, it was out of a film parody almost, where we were at this table, probably 25 feet long, filled exclusively with food. And it was just the two of us, right? And unfortunately, I'd already had breakfast, so I felt a bit rude because, you know, he's offering me all this food. And he rings this little bell to get, you know, his servants to come in to bring him a pen. And they have a race between them for who can please him more, for who's faster at getting the pen. The person who was faster looked very pleased with himself. The person that was slower looked very dejected. 
And in this experience, you're talking to someone who he was overthrown by a radio disc jockey in 2009 in a coup d'etat. He's done some horrible stuff, right? But you sort of have this conversation with this person and he's fascinating. There's not that many people who have been presidents of countries. And so I felt it was worth speaking to him because he had insights that very few people have about power, about the way politics works in these countries, about the way you rig elections, all sorts of stuff that, again, we can actually study because these people are living, they're breathing. They're not some distant object that's you know impossible to examine like some historical aspect of ancient Rome. They are alive and they're there for us to talk to. And so I've taken the perspective throughout my career that whoever will talk to me, no matter how unsavory, uh, I will at least hear out. There's that interesting thing, that tone that you just adopted there. And we often hear this when we are talking about people who are dreadful and hideous, that they can do terrible things, but you can find it slightly amusing that they've piled their breakfast table high with food or that their minions have a race to see who can bring you the pen. What do you think that says about us and the way that we deal with despots and the way that we handle them? I think there's two dimensions to it. One is that humor is a coping mechanism. It's a way that people deal with horrific acts. And you do see this throughout some mass atrocities in history, that there's humor around them, very dark humor. But it's a way to deal with this unspeakable acts that people are engaged in. But it's also a way to sort of cut them down to size, right? I mean, one of the things that you find with powerful people is their biggest fear is not necessarily losing power or facing a rival or being beaten in a debate. It's being laughed at. Being laughed at by someone who's powerful, who's a narcissist, is one of the most harmful things you can do to them. And so I think when some of these people are so over the top that you just have to relay these anecdotes of how they're basically behaving like buffoons or caricatures of themselves, I think that's a very useful way of approaching it. It's important, though, not to lose sight that the funny aspects of it don't overshadow the monstrosities. Well, yeah, it's one of those issues that actually you can't let this lie, can you? Was there any encounter that you had which was seriously no laughing matter at all? Oh, there's been lots of them. I mean, you know, the one, there's parts of the podcast where I've sort of talked about my work obliquely. And one of the things that I've referenced in previous episodes a few times is talking to torture victims. And you, you've seen both sides of that. I've interviewed people who are in the government who were involved in the torture. And then I've interviewed the torture victims. There's nothing funny about that. It's one of the most horrific things. But I think in the book, what I'm trying to figure out is what makes these people tick where they can end up ordering torture, right? Because I've seen up close what the consequences are when I talk to someone who's still got the physical scars and obviously has the emotional scars. And so one of the points that I make in the book is there's this concept called psychological distance, which is crucial to understanding how to get people in power to behave better. So psychological distance is basically this concept that all of us are pretty familiar with. It's how much do you feel personally invested and close to another individual? We recognize this in film and TV because we, if we have storylines associated with a character, even if they're a non-human character like Bambi's mom, we can cry about it. Whereas if you have somebody in a war film who just gets mowed down by bullets, we sort of abstractly understand that they have a family and friends, but we might not even blink at it because we're desensitized and there's no story and no investment in this person. So the emotional closeness we feel is really, really important when you think about abuse by people in power. And I talk about this juxtaposition in this chapter between Ken Feinberg, who's a guy who oversaw the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund and literally had to put a price tag on how much each person's life was worth, 
And he met with every single victim's family, right? Everyone up close. He talked to all of them. And he tried to make a decision that was objective and unemotional. But if he was going to put his stamp of approval on that dollar amount, he wanted to have the full picture. And he wanted to feel awful in the experience because he thought it was healthy for him to have that emotional overhang of the tragedy living with him throughout the time that he was making those decisions. And I juxtapose that with somebody else I met, John Yu, who was out in Berkeley, California, was the person who authored the torture memos for the Bush administration. He he basically said, these are the kinds of torture that the United States, they call it enhanced interrogation, I call it torture, that the United States government can do for people who are alleged to be terrorists. What was really interesting was how dispassionate and detached he was when he talked about this, right? So we're talking in his Berkeley office. He's a law school professor now. And I don't know this for certain, but I'm pretty sure that he's never interacted with somebody being tortured. And yet he was able to make this pronouncement of here's what's allowed. And things that were allowed didn't just include waterboarding, which is stuff that we talk about quite frequently where someone's made to feel like they're drowning, but also confining them in a box that's like a casket full of live insects, right? I mean, that was one of the tactics that the torture memo signed off on. And what I couldn't help thinking when I was asking him these questions, I kept saying like, if I were in your position, I would really agonize over this. I'd lose sleep over it. And he's like, well, some people did, but I didn't. It was a straightforward legal question. And I thought to myself, you know, how many realms of society are so detached now from, you know, CEOs who dump toxic sludge 2,000 miles away and never go to the country where they're going to affect the people, to now the fact that we have these euphemisms for people who get fired, the downsizing consultants and so on, so that the boss who knows you doesn't actually have to pull the trigger and fire you. We have set up systems that encourage abuse because we've embedded emotional distance, unhealthy amounts of emotional distance in our society. And so I couldn't help thinking, John Yu would have been, whether he would have changed his mind or not, I don't know, but he should have had to go to a black site and watch what he was saying was okay before he said it was okay. And I think that's something that we need to take as a lesson for people in power. They need to be closer emotionally to the subjects of their abuse. Let's start looking at the book in a little bit more detail. I mean, you, there are lots of questions that you try and answer, but at the heart of it, it's a question about who gets power and how does it change us? How did you start to organize your thoughts with all this? When I try to explain the book in, in short terms to people, because there's so many different threads that it tries to explore, but one of the core takeaways of the book is that if you think about an iceberg, you've got the tip that you can see, but often the stuff lurking below the surface is what sinks the ships. It's the dangerous bit. And I think when we think about power, so much of what we're thinking about is the tip of the iceberg, the people who are already in power. And we rarely think about the people who never got to power, either because they didn't want it, or because they were kept out of it, or because they found it so repulsive, the idea that the arena of politics or business power, whatever, is so toxic that they just stayed away from it. And that also includes systematic biases against minorities and women that we need to think about much more. So one of the things that I'm trying to convey in the book is that there's a lot going on that's invisible, which is basically the stuff around who never ever gets power and who never ever seeks power because they don't think it's for people like them. The core of the argument in a way is that bad people are disproportionately drawn to power, disproportionately good at getting power, and disproportionately good at staying in power. Now, what does that end up with? Well, it ends up with a world where we have some really professional, awful people ruling the world <laughs> and some really wonderful, the people that you know in your life maybe are community leaders but would never think about running for office or becoming a CEO. 
those people stay out of the more consequential positions. And I think that that is something where we have to have a, a really, really big rethink about how society is structured to invert that relationship, to ensure that the best people seek, get, and stay in power. You talk about the way that society is structured there. Very early on in the book, you start to talk about why society actually enables those who desire power to sort of rise to the top, don't you? The, you talk about the fact that society needs a hierarchy in order to function on a grand scale. Yeah, so chapter two of the book was one of the most interesting ones that I researched. And it was outside of my, my realm of expertise because I was dealing with evolutionary biology and the history of humanity and chimpanzees and all this stuff. But it's basically asking this question, why do we have bosses and bosses, bosses and bosses, bosses, bosses in every aspect of our life, right? Why do we have such rigid hierarchical structures? And the thing that's surprising, the reason why that question is actually really relevant and important is because for most of human history, we didn't. When you talk to evolutionary biologists who study hunter-gatherers in the Stone Age and so on, most of those societies were relentlessly flat. They were egalitarian. There's even some really interesting aspects of how this was enforced where you'd think, okay, if you've got a hunting society, you're going to have the warriors or the hunters rise to the top because they're so important for the society. Well, some bands of hunter-gatherers solved this problem by doing something where they gave ownership of flint arrowheads to everyone in the band. Everyone owned one, let's say, okay? Then they rotate them around and whoever kills a, uh, you know, prey with an arrowhead, the credit goes to the owner, not the hunter. And because they rotate the ownership of the arrowheads around, everybody gets equal credit. So nobody actually ends up rising through the hierarchy. Now, the problem is that as societies got bigger, which basically, as I explore in the book, happened through what I call sort of flippantly war and peace, which is to say conquest, the rise of, of much larger armies, and also the rise of agriculture. Those both transformed human society, made it much more extensive human societies with much larger populations. Inevitably, once the population got above a certain level, hierarchy was the only way to rule things. It's something we're stuck with. We're not going to go back to egalitarian hunter-gatherer tribes. But I think you know one of the really interesting things about human society that I had never thought about before researching this book, but it makes a lot of sense, is that one thing that makes us different from most other species where if you do have a hierarchy, the person at the top or the animal at the top is the strongest and biggest, that's because the way you kill other animals is by uh, being bigger and stronger than them, being dominant. For humans, that's not necessarily true because we have ranged weapons. We can kill people at a distance. So, you know, several hundred thousand years ago, the first spear was developed. Another thing that's really interesting, I think, is that humans are the only species on the planet that can accurately throw objects at speed with accuracy. So we had this lucky cosmetic surgery done to our shoulders in evolutionary terms quite a long time ago. And that means that we can throw stuff really, really accurately. Chimpanzees can't do that. And so when you think about things like toddlers who accidentally kill their parents with a gun, which happens on a weekly basis in the United States, think about a chimpanzee doing that, right? A baby chimpanzee cannot kill an adult male chimpanzee. What does that mean for society? Well, it means that all of a sudden we can have people rise through the ranks based on cleverness and skill rather than physical size. We've been sort of unburdened of the relationship between physical size and strength. And yet, because our brains evolved in an era in which a lot of physical size and strength was important for rising through the ranks, we still have cognitive biases that reward big, strong men in very stupid ways. I mean, look at Vladimir Putin publishing photos shirtless and doing press-ups as part of the aspects of why I should be in charge. It's lunacy. 
but yet we still have these sort of, there's plenty of studies, by the way, which I, I talk about in the book that show that we have preference in our cognitive biases, especially in times of crisis for physically large males. And it's really stupid, but the first step of fixing it is acknowledging that it exists. You then introduce quite briefly the idea of why Angela Merkel might be an anomaly here. Can you explain then? Because Angela Merkel is, does not fit into that category, does she? This is the beauty of it, right? So we have been unburdened of this straightforward relationship between physical size and power. And more enlightened people have been unburdened of that completely and don't care about it. But there are some cognitive biases that linger. So it's not true for everyone, right? Angela Merkel is one of the most successful politicians in modern history. She's also not physically large or particularly strong. And that doesn't matter, right? And that's great. But there are still lots of studies that show, especially, and this is why, you know, the term strongman is a great example. Of this. It's not an accident. The term strongman is something where the sort of lizard brains of these people who are aspiring to get power through any means necessary have recognized something about human cognition, which is that when there is threat around, especially in times of crisis, war, famine, etc., a person who is physically strong looks like they are in charge to the Stone Age biases that still linger in our brains is more effective at getting power. There's lots of psychology studies that exist that show this effect. And the reason for it is basically when you talk to evolutionary psychologists who look at the structures of the brain and how it's changed over time, they say that we have a, you know, a modern day body with a Stone Age mind. In other words, our brain size and structure hasn't radically changed from the Stone Age, even though the way we set up our society has radically changed. This mismatch comes up all the time in lots of other sorts of studies. If you think about why obesity is such a large problem in the modern day, it's nothing to do with power, but it does have something to do with this mismatch. Basically, in the past, our brains were hardwired to cling on to any little shred of sugar or fat that you could get. And fruits in the past were basically as sweet as carrots are today because we just didn't have ways to genetically modify them or create you know, fruits that are really, really appealing to us. So the amount of sugar in a Stone Age diet was really minuscule. Now you know, we can pipe sugar straight into our bloodstream, and so we end up addicted to these foods. That Stone Age mind mismatch also plays out in power, and it plays out in terms of the cognitive biases that are destructive in us being drawn towards people who are actually going to do a very bad job ruling over us, but yet we still have these persistent biases that used to serve us well when we lived in a very different time period. So far, we've talked just a tiny little bit about despots themselves, and you've really gone to town on psychology, economics, neuroscience, evolutionary biology is a big thing in the book. What was it that made you want to put so much of that in your book? I've written a lot about despots in the past, but I think that the fascinating aspect of them is how do they end up in that position, right? And I don't mean that from how did they get, you know, in charge in a coup. I mean, how do you start with a person who is innocent as a child? Mark Ravalomanana grew up volunteering in church and selling watercress off the back of his bicycle. How do you get that progression? How do you get someone who ends up in this position of power who is willing to do the most atrocious things having started out in a very different position? And that goes back to that nature-nurture debate, right? I mean, one of the interviews I did for the book was with the daughter of the former emperor of the Central African Republic, who was allegedly a cannibal and allegedly served visiting dignitaries human meat. And when they drained his pond of crocodiles when he was overthrown, there was human remains in them. So an absolute monster, an ogre. And, you know, I asked her, what do you think about this? You're genetically very related to this person. And, you know, she was quite straightforward with me and I think quite 
blunt and she said, I think I inherited some of his traits. You know, I think my temper is his, but I also think that I can counteract it because I'm aware of this. So when you think about the sort of debate around authoritarian leaders or bad politicians, there's something much deeper than what's discussed. It's sort of like our discourse often ends at, this person is awful, I hate them. That's what our political discourse often ends around people who do bad things in positions of political power. There's an interesting question going on. That's how did they get created? What's going on in their mind? Is their brain the same as your brain? And that's the debate that I was really drawn to is there's a much more complicated, nuanced story that the tagline for it is people are really complicated. And I think that the when it comes to despots, the exact same is true. We end up with caricatures of them, but they're really nuanced people. Now, they do unequivocally awful things, but... I found that I had studied and thought a lot about how, in immediate terms, they get into power. I was starting to do a deep dive in the longer story of awful, abusive people who end up in positions of authority. And that was what the sort of impetus for the book was. It's interesting that you mentioned it's Marie-France Bocassa, isn't it? The, whose father, Jean Bedel Bocassa, was the man with the pond full of crocodiles and the fridge full of human bodies to be fed. What I found amazing in that bit was not just the fact that she was clear in accepting what her father was and how she was intimately connected to it. But she wanted to continue his name and develop some pride with that. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, this was fascinating because I said to her, do you ever want to change your name? I, I, I sort of thought, you know, if I was related to somebody who is known to history as a cannibal emperor, maybe I would want to distance myself from that person. And she said, no, you know, I'm really proud of the Bacasa name. It's a name that evokes pride and strength. And then I asked her at the end of the interview, you know, do you think a Bacasa will ever sit on the throne, so to speak, in the Central African Republic again? And she said, I'm not ruling anything out, which is a line that's familiar to people who are about to run for president in the United States. So <laughs> that worried me a bit when she said that. But I think that the reason I asked her that and the reason I spoke to her actually was because I was wondering, is there a power gene? Do we have something in our genetic code that causes certain people to really lust for power? We, we've all experienced this in our lives, right? There's people you end up encountering who are just ruthless, power-hungry people, even if the stakes are really low. They just really want to be, you know, in charge of the local school board or whatever it is. They still seem to have that thirst for power that some other people don't have. And so I looked into talking to her, but I also looked into genetic research on this. And there are researchers who have found a power gene. They've basically coded it and said that this gene is correlated with seeking positions and obtaining positions of leadership. But I found that pretty unsatisfactory because there's a whole host of reasons why that might be the case, right? That gene might be actually correlated with attributes or traits that cause people to be good at getting power. So, of course, they controlled for things like race and gender and so on. So the simple explanations were taken into account. But they didn't control for the fact that certain traits make you much better at obtaining power, right? There's certain people who are very good at being outgoing, charming, likable. And in a job interview, that pays off. In, a, in an election, that pays off. So was this a power gene or was this just a gene that's correlated with traits that help you obtain power? And the answer is we don't know. So I, I leave that actually as an open question in the book simply because it's, it's currently unanswerable. We don't know whether there's a genetic basis to power seeking, but we do know that certain genes are correlated with people who currently end up in power. It's interesting that you talk about that because in the book you mentioned the idea of a self-selection bias of people who crave power and you ask whether corruptible people seek power. You mentioned the fact that the genetic question there isn't entirely answerable, but what about upbringing and history and experience? It's the nature versus nurture thing again, isn't it? 
Yeah, so I think this is absolutely the case. And I explore this. There's one chapter where I talk a lot about psychopaths because that is genetic, right? I mean, psychopathy is a condition. It's a, Your brain doesn't operate the same way as other people. And to illustrate this, there's an amazing study where they show people, they put them in an MRI machine and then they show them awful images, right? Children suffering, animals being abused and so on. And they've got your brain scanned while you're watching this. All of us listening, I hope, most of us listening, I should say, in case there's some psychopaths out there. Non-psychopaths, when they're listening to this and their brains, they light up like a firework. Their empathy goes through the roof. It's an awful experience. Psychopaths have their empathy switched off by default. So they don't feel particularly bad when they're watching these images. But fascinatingly, and I love this bit of the study, when one of the researchers had this chance thought pop into her head, she thought, I wonder what will happen if I tell them to try to be empathic towards the suffering victims they're watching. And when she gave them instructions that said, try to empathize with them, their brains lit up like normal brains. So what it basically means is that psychopaths can turn on empathy when they want to, but it's switched off by default. And, you know, it's a really interesting insight for people in, in positions of power. But in addition to the nature and nurture debate, I think one of the key elements, and this is where social science comes in, is also structures and systems that we operate in. You know, one of the age-old questions, there's a lot of people who do stuff on how do normal people or seemingly normal people commit mass atrocities, right? We have this with Rwanda, Nazis, et cetera. And I think that one of the things is, is partly psychological, it's also the system that normal people end up in. And so to illustrate this, I use an example from history, which is Leopold, the king of Belgium, who was in Belgium itself, when he was in charge, known as a great reformer. He introduced all sorts of progressive social reforms, you know, labor rights, more universal schooling for children. And he also opened up his, you know, ornate public works in Belgium to the public to help them share in it. I mean, he's generally regarded as someone who did largely good things in Belgium itself. But then when he took over the Belgian Congo, which is now most of you know, Central Africa and the modern day Democratic Republic of the Congo, he was one of the worst monsters in history. He's responsible for literally millions of deaths in that area that he controlled, like as he called it, his personal slice of African cake. And this juxtaposition of this generally positive reformer in one system who then transplants himself to another system where there's no rules, where he doesn't see the people as fully human, where there's no oversight whatsoever, there's no accountability. You know, he unleashed himself on that territory to extract rubber and millions of people died in the process. And so I also explore this with uh, an interview I did with Paul Bremer, who ruled Iraq after the U.S. invaded. I, I, it's one of the weirder things I did for the book. I flew out to Vermont and had a ski lesson with him because he's a ski instructor there now. And the point I make was that he had some conversations with people early on. I talked to him about this at length, where he thought that right after the sort of disorder of the invasion had subsided, he wanted the U.S. military to shoot the looters who were rampaging around Baghdad as a way to establish law and order early on so things didn't spiral out of control into a civil war. This is a horrible thing to have suggested, right? I mean, there's no, there's no moral absolution that should be extended to this. But the point I make is he was also the ambassador to Malawi and Norway and a whole bunch of other places. He never suggested anything like that. He was in a position where all of the options were going to lead to deaths. And I think one of the things that we need to recognize with people in power is that systems shape their behavior enormously. We end up often very understandably criticizing people in power 
not recognizing sometimes two facts. One is that the system may have shaped their behavior, and two is that they may be doing something bad, but the alternatives may have been worse. And I think that's really important for the debates that we have about around positions of power. So again, not to absolve them. It's just to inject the nuance that this is more complex than it seems at first. Tell us a little bit more about where that goes when you start talking about U.S. law enforcement. There's a section in the book where you there's an advert to be a policeman in the United States, and it it attracts a certain kind of person who is arguably very different to the kind of person who, let's say, the New Zealand police force wants to have on board. Yeah, so this is one of the areas of the book that I, I really enjoyed researching it. And I, it's one of those aspects where, as a social scientist, you're watching the world sort of debate a problem. And you're starting to think, you know, I think this debate is really misguided. Something is missing here. And that's precisely what happened here. So all the debate around police abuse in the United States focuses on what the police do. And with that tip of the iceberg issue that I was talking about before, I think we need to think about who the police are, who ends up being drawn to policing. So New Zealand did this amazing outreach campaign where they had these hilarious viral ads to recruit police officers that do not look like any ad for police that you've seen previously. It's a very funny ad. There's an unseen perpetrator that's being chased. The people chasing them in uniform are disproportionately women, ethnic minorities, and so on. They're occasionally, during the chase, stopping to help an old woman cross the road. Sometimes there's somebody with a boombox, and they stop to dance with that person as part of the community. And then when they get to the end of the chase, it turns out the perpetrator is a dog who's stolen a handbag from a woman, right? So not exactly a serious crime. And on the screen, it says, do you care enough to be a cop? With the message that if you don't, and this doesn't look like policing to you, we don't want you, right? Now, I juxtapose this with U.S. recruitment. And I mean, I found the most insane over-the-top recruitment ads. I mean, the video is just, it boggles the mind. It's these soldiers, effectively, they're in camouflage, driving literally in a tank, in the Doraville, Georgia Police Department, you know, population, I think it's like 13,000. And they have a tank, right? And they have their guns drawn, they throw smoke grenades out, the Punisher logo flashes on screen, which was, you know, a superhero that's basically known for vigilante justice and torturing criminals. And then that's the end of the recruitment video. And of course, the heavy metal music title of the, the song I can't say on the podcast. <laughs> it's basically everything that the New Zealand recruitment is not, right? And it makes it look like policing is a militarized army. And so what I wanted to figure out is how does this play out in the real world? Well, New Zealand has realized, as you know, I interviewed the head of HR basically for the New Zealand police force, and she said to me, look, the white men come to policing, the white men who like the idea of being in charge, they come to us no matter what. We don't have to recruit for them. Some of them make excellent police officers, right? It's not that we don't want these white men who are drawn to policing. It's just that we also recognize that we want the police force to reflect New Zealand. And we're disproportionately not getting applicants from certain communities. So how can we try to rectify that by making policing look like something that's appealing to these groups that don't self-select into positions of power? And that debate doesn't exist in the United States, right? It's all about body cameras, which are a good idea, but they don't solve the fundamental issue that local police departments in the United States disproportionately draw in people who like the idea of having a badge and a gun and occasionally like the idea of shooting people. And disproportionately, you know, frankly, I think are, are more racist than the average person in the public. So we know that. What do we do about it? The answer is partly reforming what the police do, which is what the conversation is about on the left in the United States political sphere. 
But that debate hasn't extended to saying we need a fundamental rethink of how we make policing attractive to ethnic minorities, to women, to non-traditional police officers, people who wouldn't want to walk around with a gun and a badge, but actually might make excellent community officers. And that's the real, I think, lesson there. It's a theme that of problem solving that appears quite a lot in the book. You're mentioning there the fact that if you are in New Zealand and you want to be a police officer, you have perhaps to be someone who's rather different or who doesn't look like a conventional police officer. That ties in very much with a story that you tell about a statistician, aircraft, World War II, and how to work out or how to solve a problem by looking for what's not there. Yeah, so this is one of those great stories from history that has the benefit of being true, but also is illuminating in how we think about problems the wrong way. So there's this guy named Abraham Wald who flees the Nazis from Europe, ends up as a statistician at Columbia in New York, and is basically approached by the U.S. government saying, can you use your mathematical wisdom to help us win World War II? And he agrees and sets up a statistical research group that has the aim of basically helping the allies win the war. And they come to him and they say, we have a whole bunch of planes that have been doing bombing runs over Germany. Some of them have holes in the wings, some have holes in the tail, and some have holes in the nose. We're trying to figure out where to reinforce the plane. So where should we put extra armor? And the generals had had this debate and some of them had said wings, some had said nose, some had said tail. And they said, Abraham Wald, what do you think as a statistician? And he took one look at it and said, if you reinforce any of those places, you'll be making a catastrophic mistake. Those are the only places you shouldn't reinforce. And the reason for that is that all of the planes that had bullet holes in those three places had made it back from their bombing run over Germany. The planes that had been hit elsewhere had crashed in Germany and they were invisible. And I use this as an analogy to say, In power, we are only focusing on the visible planes, the ones who have made it to positions of power. We never see the invisible planes, the people who never sought power or never obtained it, right? They're invisible to us because they simply crashed and burned when they tried to get power like the planes left in Germany. So I think this is a whole different way of seeing power. It's that if you want to fix the people you see in power, you need to start with the people you don't see in power. And every system needs to be reformed to reflect that fundamental dynamic that I think we're getting really, really wrong when we fixate only on the people who end up in power, the visible planes that have returned from Germany. So that moves us nicely on to fixes, Brian. You know, 350 pages in, what conclusion do you draw about who is drawn to power, whether it is corruptible people are drawn to power or not, or whether it is power itself? And how do we make sure that our world can one day become a less corrupt and terrifying place. Yeah, so this sort of the last quarter, last third of the book is trying to say, look, we know the problems, we understand what's happening, how do we turn it around? And I think the fundamental truth about power seeking is that some people go into power or seek power for exactly the right reasons. But there's a disproportionate number who don't, and those people are disproportionately harmful, right? Because when you are someone who wants power for all the wrong reasons, you're in a consequential position and you can do a lot of damage. So we need to design every system with that expectation, that anytime you put out a call for power, whether it's through a promotion or through an election, whatever it is, at least some of the people drawn to that are going to be drawn for exactly the wrong reasons. Some will be psychopaths, and so we need to make sure that there's a lot of fail-safes in counteracting that. 
Now, I won't go through all of the, you know, I have 10 different remedies that I explain in the book, so I won't go through all of them. But one great example of this is something very simple. It's rotation, okay? So banks have been doing this for a long time. There's trying to figure out who's embezzling or who's committing fraud in a bank. Many of them mandate two-week vacations for bank employees, some of them longer, some of them shorter. But the idea is you take somebody on a sort of unannounced vacation and you make it so they are all of a sudden taken out of a system where they could have been abusing their authority or embezzling. And you expose what's been happening because the person who replaces them obviously is not taking the money and therefore you find out what happened. Now, we've seen this in other places that's been trialed. So the Metropolitan Police, for example, have found that when you have corruption in the police force, it often is because the group of police officers who are involved in it are a very close-knit and closed-off group of cops. They basically protect each other. They're all in on it. And so rotation of officers between groups and through different positions actually is a check on corruption and abuse. And this is true throughout society that you just, we've seen psychology studies as well, where you give people a sort of problem that has a real cash prize. And if they win the competition, they get the cash prize. When people are put into teams of two that never rotate, they're much more likely to develop a trust bond and they're much more likely to start cheating. When they rotate with new partners all the time, that becomes way less likely. So, you know, drawing on real world examples, psychology, all sorts of aspects of how, you know, the brain functions, et cetera, you start to come to the solution, which is remarkably simple, but isn't tried most places, right? We should have much more common mandatory rotation anytime somebody is in a position of consequential authority to ensure that there are oversight mechanisms and to ensure that they just simply don't get too comfortable with their abuse. Well, you get places like that. So you you often get in many countries a a sort of four-year presidential rotation or you can't stay in power for too long. But what you often find is that those who are in power and those who are corrupt and who are abusing it decide to reshape the system to stop it from happening. And we're looking at Russia at the moment. We're looking at China in those situations where the two men in power have decided that they're going to stay until they decide to go. So how do you ensure that rotation and fairness and, and all that can happen? The argument I make, at least, is that, you know, I mean, I'm biased because I came up with these ideas, but I think all 10 of them have to basically happen. Because what I say is that, okay, let's think about every element of the problem. You have the people who are disproportionately drawn to power, the power seekers. Okay, we need to solve that problem so that it's not disproportionate anymore. Here's the ways we do that. Now let's move on to the next level. Who's actually good at getting power? Okay, let's imagine that we've mostly solve the problem at the lower level, but there's some who've squeaked through, right? Some psychopaths who've managed to evade our protections. Now let's figure out how we ensure that the promotion prospects aren't better for psychopaths and abusive people. And then you think about, okay, let's imagine that even with our best efforts, some psychopaths have squeaked through again, and they're now in power. How do we set up oversight and systems to ensure that the damage they do is limited? And so I think that everything around power has to be thought through with the given expectation that we are going to get bad people in these positions. And then you figure out how to counteract it. So any one of the solutions that I propose, you know, the rotation one, it's not gonna solve the problem. It will help. And if we do a whole bunch of cascading solutions in tandem, we're going to have a much better world. But, you know, it is a thorny problem because the system is ingrained. It's not something where 
we just have to sort of flip a switch and all of a sudden good people are in power. This is a multi-generational fight probably, but we haven't thought seriously about it before. I think that, as I say, so much fixation has gone on to who the people in power are and how they behave and not enough has gone into how they ended up there or who ended up getting siphoned out of the system to begin with, that until we have that recognition, which is one of the core arguments in the book, we're never going to fix the problem. So no, there's no easy solution. There's no panacea. There's nothing that's going to sort of, you know, wave a magic wand and all of a sudden all of our dictators will become Democrats and they'll all be lovely people who want to help humanity. But I do firmly believe that we can build a better society. And I think that that is something where with the despair and despondency that's in the news all the time, we have to zoom out a little bit and say, does it have to be this way? And I think the answer is a resounding no. Finally, the name of your podcast is power corrupt. Is that a statement of fact or is that just a catchy title? Yeah, this is a great question. I I sort of (laughs) had this moment of alarm when I was researching the book where I was like, what if I end up finding out that my podcast name is wrong? (laughs) Like, what if power doesn't corrupt? That will be a problem for branding, won't it? But I actually, what I found is that power does corrupt. It's just probably the least interesting aspect of power. So there's plenty of evidence to suggest that power corrupts. We know it does. It changes how people think. It changes their brain chemistry. I have a chapter both on how power corrupts and how power changes you physically. But I think that that stuff is sort of taken as a given. I explain the evidence for it and I show how it changes you. So, you know, it increases risk-taking, for example. You tend to think you're much more invincible. So if you give people dice and you say, if you roll a six, we'll give you money, you can either have somebody else roll the dice or you can roll it. People who are powerful insist on rolling the dice themselves as though they have some sort of magical ability to make the dice roll and land as a six. They don't, of course, but they have something called illusory control, and that means that they're much more risk-taking. It also makes sense, right? They've won a lot in the past. If you're in power by virtue, you have a track record of winning and getting lucky, so you probably have this belief in yourself that's irrational. That's very damaging. It means that you end up being corrupted by this idea that you can always sort of always walk on water because you're, you're powerful. But I think, as I think I've hopefully made clear, that this aspect, while true, is the smallest aspect of the debate around power. Every time I talk to people about powerful people in my work, they say, oh yeah, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. It's just trotted out as this sort of aphorism to make people sound witty. Now, okay, it is correct, but is it really where the debate should be focused? I think the answer is no. And so power corrupts is a good encapsulation for a podcast that's about bad people doing bad things. It is technically true, But I hope in the book I've explained why the dynamics around power are actually much more expansive and much more fascinating than just that pithy two-word catchphrase. 